If you have your Bible, grab that and flip over to, uh, what are we going to do, Luke? Let's keep doing Luke. Let's do it. We're only two chapters in, so let's do that for a little longer. While you're doing that, I'm going to blow my nose. We've got a cold running around my house. If any of you know how to catch it, stay away from our house because just we're, we, are, we are catching the cold on an expert level these days. So before we, before we dive in that, I want to just kind of take a couple of thoughts about what it's like for the early Christian believers, or the earlier follow, earliest followers of Jesus. Just a couple of quick thoughts that will kind of shape the way we read this text today and then kind of move us forward as we move out in lives of worship. So the first one is this. Uh, The gospel is compelling. For the earliest Christians, the gospel was compelling. We get this confused a lot of times here in America because we're told that this is a Christian nation founded on Christian principles. And so... God and country have long since been a part of the fabric of our country for 200 plus years. And so sometimes for us, the gospel is less compelling than it should be. The gospel, I have this conversation a lot with people about, okay, so I prayed the prayer, I've accepted the gospel, now what do I do? Like, okay, I'm ready for the next step. And there's not a next step. The gospel is the step. The the gospel of Jesus Christ, the death of Jesus Christ is what draws you into relationship with Christ, with God the Father, through the cross of Christ. The faithfulness of Jesus, seated at the right hand of the Father, though he experienced all of the temptations that we do, is the thing that keeps us in this faith. And the mission that we were given by Jesus, by all of his authority, is what moves us in the faith. The gospel is the sum total of what you and I believe. See, back then, specifically for the Jewish believers, having been overrun for hundreds and hundreds of years, Remember, this is, this is why the Lord ordained for us to walk through Daniel and to see the overturning of kingdom after kingdom after kingdom, new form of worship, new form of worship, worship in secret, kind of worship a little bit in public. As long as you keep their king as part of your worship, then you're good. All the other religions of the day, actually all of the other religions today say that if you do better. If you do more, you can either cease to exist or God will be pleased with you and he will welcome you in. And it's all, it's all on you. But for these earliest believers, the ones who saw Jesus, like for them, it's like, gosh, never seen, and you can read through, and we will, people saying, I've never heard someone speak with such authority. Where does this authority that he speaks with come from? I want to be around that authority. Been told that the Messiah would come and all of the governments of the world 
would rest on his shoulders. And for these early believers, they see the reality of that because they watched this man die. And then they watched this man walk around alive. If death cannot keep this man down, there's not a government on the planet. So maybe I thought he'd look different than he does. But dude, if death can't keep this guy down, then we don't have anything to be afraid of. So let's follow this guy with our life. To the next generation, the Apostle Paul, murderer, slanderer, this man who Galatians would tell us he was so zealous for a 4,000 year tradition that he was even guilty of breaking the law that he was at war to keep, right? The law says thou shalt not murder, but he was having people put to death because they followed this Jesus. And so he was taking people's lives. He was at war to guard a tradition that he was breaking himself. Had no plan, no hope, no desire to ever choose this Jesus. But one day encounters this Jesus, this risen and ascended Jesus, now meets with him, changes everything about him. And then we get Luke here, who's a second generation believer who spent lots of his time with the Apostle Paul. So the gospel for them was compelling. And the second one was uh, they were committed to proclamation. Right? Why were these men willing to go to their death? The disciples of Jesus, all but one, well, one took his own life and the 10 more went to their death. Actually, they all went to their death, right? Everybody dies. <laughs> but 10 of them were executed. One of them they tried to execute, but they just couldn't. But these men were willing to give their life. Why? Because this Jesus is worth telling the world about. And he gave his life so I could tell it. So if it costs me my life, how could my life be more valuable than his? Paul, he changes everything. He changes everything. He changes my hopes, my dreams, my future, all while showing me the folly of my past. For them, the gospel was compelling, and they were committed to proclaiming it. So as we read this text today, I want us to be thinking about whether or not we truly find the gospel compelling. Now, clearly, I just said it in a really compelling way, and so you're like, yeah, of course, because... We all laugh at that. But if we take a, a, a moment to be sober about that statement, there are churches all over this country who are filled with people following a man who can compellingly tell you, but don't walk away and find it compelling. And so if our hopes and dreams rest on a man to compellingly communicate something to us, then one day that man will fail you when you find out he's not really 5'7", but he's got shoes with a little extra sole, and he's a little shorter than you thought he was, 
when our hopes and dreams say all I have is Christ. He's the only one that's enough. Then we begin to see it's more than just an organization. It's more than just a building with a roof. But it is a body of people that are being built by Jesus himself. That's the other compelling nature of this gospel. Is that all the other religions of the world, their leader died and he's in his grave today. But our leader died and he lives today. And he's not just passively waiting for us to come and join him, but he is actively moving for us. So what does the anticipation for his return look like? Let's look to two people who anticipated his first coming with everything that they had. I'm gonna start reading uh, in 21 and then the screen will pick up in 22. If you have your Bible, I'll, I'll be begin in 21. Um, so it says, at the end of eight days when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem and presented him to the Lord. As it was written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Two quick thoughts on those, uh, I don't know, three, three or four verses. Uh, Jesus tells us later that he did not come to abolish the law, but he came to fulfill it. And so Jesus had to be circumcised on the eighth day. Why? Because the law required it. So Luke is telling us this. There are kids in the room uh, but if you read the Old Testament, there are, there are sections of it that seem to be consumed with foreskins. It's like, gosh, why is God so concerned with that? And it's, it's because it points us to a condition of our heart. But it points us here to Jesus having the condition of his heart and the condition of his external self matching what was required of what we saw earlier uh, in the word Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the one who we were told would come and hold up all the governments of the world. The second one is, so I know we just finished Christmas, but we sing on the first day of Christmas, my true love gave to me. Thank you. Gosh, I thought I was the only one that knew that song. And on the second day of Christmas, my true love gave to me two turtle doves. And I had really honestly no idea where that came from. But now you do. It was part of the tradition of a sacrifice for the firstborn son who opens the womb. That they would come and offer two turtle doves or two pigeons in worship to God for the provision of family. The extension of the family. The extension of a name. Right? And so what we see here is that the gospel gives us an extension of our name. Not just our earthly name. Clark will not continue on. And contrary to popular belief, uh, Christ wasn't Jesus' last name. It wasn't Mary and Joseph Christ. Uh, Christ was the anointed one, the Messiah. And so you and I, through the sacrifice of Jesus, Galatians chapter four, Romans chapter eight, have been given the adoption as sons. And so this offering of the virgin, right? So this wasn't Joseph and Mary celebrating the extension of a name. 
but they were offering this sacrifice to God who gave Mary the child, the extension of our name in him, adopted sons and daughters of the most high God, that we would continue on in his family line for eternity. So Jesus had to do these things, uh, the mention of him. This is, this is really interesting. We're going to spend three weeks, last week, this week, uh, we're going to spend the next few weeks uh, on the, the least known section of Jesus' life. But there are some very important markers for us to see. So, so Jesus, we see him born. We see him circumcised. We see him six weeks presented at the temple. We see him at 12 again at the temple, and then we don't hear from Jesus again. But what we see is that Luke knows that we have to look back and see that from the beginning, Jesus satisfied the law. That Mary and Joseph were committed to satisfying the law inside of their son. Because if they didn't, there would be no Messiah in this. And they had to. So what we know is, during these silent years where he's growing up, where next week we'll see that he grew in stature and favor with men, that Jesus at all times was committed to upholding the law. Let's read again in verse 25. Two people who anxiously anticipated viewing the Messiah, pointing us to our anxious, anxious longing for the return of Christ. Verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death until he saw the Lord's Christ. Remember, I, I said it a few times today, but we, we saw it last week. Christ means Messiah. It's the same Hebrew word for Messiah. It means anointed one. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when his parents brought the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of all the people of Israel. And as his father and mother marveled, at what was said about him, which is crazy, right? Think a minute. Like Mary and Joseph still marveling at the things people are saying. Not, not that they were shocked, right? They knew who he was. Which again points us to the fact that you and I have no clue exactly what being in the presence of God will always be like. But what we can see is that people who even thought they knew still marveled at things as God not only revealed his plan to them, but he was revealing his plan to strangers. Just like he had been doing for hundreds of years, God is now beginning to reveal his plans to man, confirming his plans. Verse 34, and Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. And for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul so that your thoughts, so that thoughts from your hearts may be revealed. And then the, the second person, verse 36, and there was a prophetess, Anna, a daughter of that guy, a tribe of Asher. 
not cheated. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping and fasting and prayer day and night. And coming up that hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak to him and all who were waiting for the redemption of Israel, of Jerusalem. So two people who were waiting for the consolation of Israel or the redemption of Jerusalem, which means the same thing. They're interchangeable. Uh, Luke, what we know is that Luke gave us the most grammatically correct gospel, and so what Luke was doing here is probably just showing off how great he was with words, um, a feat I hope to do one day, uh, Lord willing. Two people longing for a view of Jesus. Think about the songs that we just sang. Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off your guilty fears. That's a, a, a look forward to something, right? All that I have is Christ. Christ is enough. I've decided to follow Jesus. All of these lines point us to the attitude of the hearts of Simeon and Anna. I'm not gonna die until I see the anointed Christ, the Messiah that's been promised us. Can you imagine that? Like none of us know when we're gonna die, right? Anybody? We, there's a death calendar out there if you'd like to know. It's online, just Google it. When will I die? And you can type it in and it'll tell you. So count down to that. But this guy knows that he's not gonna die. He's not gonna depart from this planet until he sees the Messiah. And then he sees him. And not that that means he's immediately gonna go die. But like Miss Donna said earlier of Ed, Ed longs to be in heaven. I, I long to be in heaven. I long to see my children grow up. Where's the balance in that? But if I'm honest with you, I also don't long to see my children grow up. Right? Every birthday that we celebrate of our children is a little bit more heartbreaking than the last, right? So my daughter, right now, if, if a word starts with L, it starts with a Y. I don't, I don't know how this works, but if the L is in the middle of the word, like she's dynamite, she can do it all day long. But if the word starts with, and every time she says it, I, I kind of hope that she's still there, right? That she's still three, that she still speaks like a three-year-old. Though I mourn the fact that she's not two anymore. And so there is this with our children growing up. We long to see them grow up. We long to see the payoff for all of our work. But we also want to keep them small forever. She does. She wants to keep you small forever. Listen, you look at her and you say, I'm growing up. You want, 
How old, how old are you? Six, dude. So if, if I could go back to any age, I'd go back and be seven. So you're almost there. You've almost made it to the golden year. Dude, so in a month, see, think about this. Seven, you're still young enough that you, if you want to take a nap, no one looks at you. Like, I'm, I'll be 38 on Tuesday. If I want to take a nap in the middle of the day, you guys can be like, come on, dude. But if you're seven, you're like, Mom, I need to take a nap. Mom's like, yes, this is great. At seven, at seven, you can dress yourself. But you can also say, Mom, I don't really want to pick out my clothes today. Like if I told my mom today, like again, 38 on Tuesday, if I said, Mom, I don't really want to pick out my clothes today, she's going to say, that's Christy's problem. I, when she said, I do, I don't pick out your clothes anymore. But I long to be with Jesus more. Because longing to see my kids grow up and see what they become, by looking at that, by, by, by hoping, I mean, of course, we all, I grew up watching the Cosby show, right? And they, all he wanted was them to get out, right? But you also want to see them become. You want to see a payoff for your efforts, which is, again, works-based theology. So the guy who comes at Christmas time it's works-based theology. If you're good, you get New Year's resolutions. You do good, you get to be proud. Hanging your hopes and your dreams on what your kids will become. See, this world is at no shortage of teaching us works-based theology, which is why the gospel is so compelling. Because no matter how righteous or how wretched you are, hope is found in Christ. Hope isn't found in a church. Hope isn't found in a pastor. Hope isn't found in your ability to do or achieve, but hope is found in Christ. Simeon and Anna long for that. We see here in verse 31, in his prayer, he says, for my eyes have seen your salvation and that you have prepared in the presence of all people. So over in verse 10, over in verse 10, it says, and the angel said to them, fear not for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. And so if you, if you look at the, the language, the words are different there and all the people means just the chosen people. But over here, Simeon is making this announcement filled with the Spirit, led by the Spirit, that salvation isn't just for the chosen people of Israel, but it is for the chosen people of God and that the Gentiles will be included in on that. Thank goodness being that I am Gentile. We long to see Jesus. One of the things that Simeon says here wasn't all joy because he speaks specifically directly to Mary. Speaking of a sword that would pierce her soul. And I don't know 
if any of you have lost a child. Right? Kids are supposed to outlive parents. That's the natural order, right? You change my diapers. I change your diapers. You go be with Jesus. That's the natural order of things. But for a parent to lose a child, I've been to many funerals where children have lost parents. And every single time, every single time, we get to this point where the understanding is that this is the natural cycle of life. But Simeon is reminding, remember, remember we, we talked a couple of weeks ago that Mary knew the promises of the Old Testament. She was familiar with God's redemptive pattern of the Old Testament. And she knew that the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, would be killed on a cross for our sins. The Old Testament tells us of all of these things. And so Simeon is reminding us that there is hope and a future, but there's also pain. Now, now you and I may not experience the same level of grief and pain that Mary experienced, but comparing your pain to my pain is, again, the world teaching us works-based theology, right? I'm not going through as much as Vinny is, so surely I should hope in the Lord. Or, hey, Vinny, your problems are nothing compared to mine. Hope in the Lord. I'm trying to, but you hope in the Lord. And we begin to compare and balance each other off, right? You're, my 13-year-old daughter's worse than your 13-year-old daughter. No, I'm serious. But Mary, there will be pain. Your son will not rise up and overtake the world like a conquering king. But this humble king will have his life taken from him and you'll watch it happen and it'll be like a sword through your soul. But it will ultimately be for your good. So where do we see the cross here in Jesus, six-week-year-old Jesus? Right there, I got, I've got it bracketed and red and colored in yellow because that sword through Mary's soul is pointing us to the cross. That's one of the things that you and I have to learn to do is look forward through every text to the cross, to our redemption. And so how do you and I move forward? Right, how do we anxiously anticipate the coming of our King Jesus like Simeon and Anna did. I, I think that we could look to Anna. It's, it's interesting that as Luke tells the story, he's writing to Theophilus. He, he's telling them these specifics. Listen, Theophilus, it's not going to be all sunshine and roses. It's going to get tough. Salvation's going to come. Wait for it. It's coming. It's already come. It's coming again. Through the words of Simeon, but he gives us just these couple of verses. Why include Anna? 
Why include her? What are his words to Theophilus? What is he saying? Speaking of her in there, verse 37, the, the first full sentence, it said, she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer day and night. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping and fasting day and night. Listen, Theophilus, this woman was anticipating viewing the Messiah also. But her heart was always set on worship. Her heart was always set on the presence of God. Right? Because in those days, the presence of God dwelt in the holies of holies. It wasn't until the veil is torn at Jesus' last breath that the presence of God is made available in us. And so this woman, he's saying, Theophilus, listen to me. Listen, as you anxiously anticipate the return of our king, stay in the presence of God and stay in a heart of worship. Do you wanna know how you can anticipate? Worship. You wanna know how you can make it through that sword in your soul? Worship. Do you, you wanna know how you can make it through times of very little? Eat nothing. And when you eat nothing, you'll be reminded of the beauty of little. It, w w when you can't speak, talk to God. When you can't just worship. And worship is not singing. Singing is worship, but worship is not singing. Prayer is worship. Fasting is worship. Proclamation of the gospel is worship. Stay in the presence of God. Day and night, don't leave the presence of God. Fortunately, you don't have to hang here all the time because the heater goes down to 58 once you guys walk out the door and it's chilly in here. By the way, you give tithes and offerings in the back of the room. Turn the heater up to 59 next week. Just kidding. That's not how it works. So I have a couple of questions. I was gonna pose these questions saying you. But I, I didn't because they're not just for you. But I'm included in on this. I've been thinking about these questions for me all week, which is why I was gonna pose them for you because this is new information for you. But remember, the gospel was compelling. So how well do we worship and pray while we wait for God to do what he's promised? There's a follow-up question to that. That's not the next question, but the follow-up question is how, do, do you have any idea what God has promised? To 
twofold question because one of the ways that we worship is reading the scriptures, right? Singing songs and spiritual psalms are worship. Prayer is worship. But studying the word of God. I heard a commercial the other day. Uh, it was, they, they, one of the radio stations does these little blurbs from different pastors, Greg Laurie, Louis Giglio, some other guy that I don't know. That guy sounds like an infomercial guy, so I don't know that I could go to his church. But Greg Laurie was talking about memorizing the scriptures, right? Carrying this thing with you is great. Right up until the point where they take your eyes from you. There are people all over the world who aren't allowed to have a Bible who will weep at the opportunity to have one page. And they will commit that one page to memory. But in America, we don't have that same problem. And so, I can't, I can't memorize the Bible. I just can't. It's just hard. I just can't do it. I'm one of those people, just so you know. It's hard. I got song lyrics out the door, though, right? I have phone numbers from middle school out the door, right? We didn't have a little phone in our pocket that memorized the phone numbers for us. I got no notes here. I can memorize all this. But I can't memorize the Bible. It's hard. It's hard. So maybe this year, maybe this is the year that we begin to memorize the Bible. Maybe we start easy. Maybe you need some help. Not maybe, definitely we're here to help. But let this be the year that we say all we have is Christ, who is the word of God. And so let's put him in our hearts. Let's fill that thing up. Maybe that's why our heart keeps overflowing with filth and self and greed and envy. Standing there with my kids the other day, And one of the older ones looked to the little ones and asked them if they envy you, do you envy me for having something? And, and I just took a quick moment to say, hey, maybe let's not teach that. It's gonna come naturally enough. Let's not teach that. Because here's what envy is. Envy, mom and dad give you this, you didn't get it. The trust that mom and dad won't give you is inserted. So envy is the belief that God won't give me what I believe I deserve. And that flows out of me. I would never in a million years say those words out loud as though they were true. But I will at every moment of every day walk around like I believe that God owes me a little bit more. I've done, works-based theology comes at us. 
in all directions. But when you put the word of God in there and the promises of God battle that envy and the more you stuff in there that is of God, the less room there is for things that are not of him. Maybe this is the year we learn to fast. Maybe this is the year we learn to crucify our sinful desires and the passions of our flesh that wage war against our soul. Maybe this is the year we learn to pray. Theophilus, listen. As you anxiously await all that God has promised, stay in the presence. Worship, pray, fast. So how well do we worship when we wait for God's promises? First, we gotta know them, then we can worship. And the next one is, what is our current commitment to the proclamation, us, that's of this very compelling gospel? Those early followers of Jesus were committed to it. Do you know how I know? There'd be no church today if they weren't. Right? Because persecution came to Jerusalem and the Christians scattered all over the world. Jesus said, all authority has been given to me. Go into all the world. And then the Christians said, yeah, he meant all the world. Let's stay right here. And, and God said, no, no, I meant all the world. And if you won't go, I'll make you. Right? But their commitment to the proclamation of the gospel is why you and I have the Bible today. It is why you and I can gather today as saints, sons and daughters of the Most High God, adopted in, ransomed back through the cross of Jesus. There's a lost and dying world who will never know the salvation that belongs to them in the cross of Jesus unless we boldly proclaim that. And we will never boldly proclaim it unless we think it is compelling. So maybe we have to ask another question. Do I find the gospel compelling? Or have I bought into this Americanized version of God and country? I don't want a gospel that rises and falls on an election cycle that happens every four years. I don't. I want a gospel that stands on the rock of ages that was cut out for me that I may hide myself in it. So, we're going to come to the table this morning. We're going to feast on the body and the blood of Jesus. And I want you to ask yourself these questions. I want you to sit there in your seat before you come. And I want you to ask yourself, how well do I worship while I wait on God to fulfill His promises? Do I know His promises? What do I need to do to learn His promises? And what is my level of commitment to the proclamation of the gospel? 
And do I find it compelling? And when you're ready, come to the table. And you feast on the body that says, though you will never find it compelling enough. Though you will never worship enough. Though you will never memorize enough. You've still been ransomed back. And you drink the blood. that says it doesn't depend on you. All of your past, all of your present, and all of your future sin is covered. It doesn't free us from working, but it frees us from the pressure of success because success doesn't land on you. I've told some of you guys this. I was super depressed last summer. hard. I got to stand up here and act like everything's good, right? Nobody wants somebody to preach them the Bible with tears in their eyes all the time. Sometimes you want me to be excited about something, but last summer, dude, I was a wreck. And the Lord said, Greg, why are you working so hard to do my job? I don't even know what you're talking about. You told me you told me to move 1,700 miles away from everything I know. You told me to move 1,700 miles away from everyone who knows that when you say howdy, you say howdy back, right? You told me to leave my mom and my dad, my brother, my nieces and nephews. My grandpa, my grandparents who could die any day, I won't be able to make it back for that. I got it. Leave your father and mother and follow me. I'm on it. Let the dead bury their own dead. I'm on it. I don't know what you're talking about. I'm doing exactly what you told me to do. No, that's not what I told you to do. And what am I doing? Three weeks I wrestled with this question. Why are you working so hard to do my job? Clearly, I don't know what your job is. I also don't know what mine is, because apparently I thought I was doing my job. I'm just trying to build a church. He said, that's it. Say it again. Just trying to build a church. What did I say? On this, I'll build my church. Gates of hell won't stand against it. That's right. That's what I said. Stop doing my job. Maybe you'll be more satisfied if you do your job. It took a couple more weeks because I wasn't quite sure what my job is now. But it's the same thing yours is. Go make disciples. So what's a disciple? A disciple 
the net definition that we've landed on is a person who loves and follows Jesus and is teaching someone else to love and follow Jesus. Which is tough. Because if you aren't teaching someone else to love and follow Jesus, you are not a disciple. Doesn't mean you can't be. And it doesn't mean you haven't been at some point. And it doesn't mean you won't go to heaven. But we're making disciples here. And at our church, disciples make disciples. And so this year, this year will be the year that we help you learn how to do that. And we're gonna do it by learning the life of Jesus. We're gonna learn it by listening to what Luke says. Listen, Theophilus, grab this so that you may know and you may teach. The teacher always learns more than the student. So feast on the body and the blood. In worship. In proclamation. Feasting on the body and the blood is proclamation. When you walk through this line to the table, you're telling every person in this room where you stand. So if you don't stand on the side of Jesus, don't lie. Better to not take it than take it wrongly. But if you stand on the side of Jesus and you are prepared to worship while you wait, and you're prepared to learn the promises of God and proclaim this ultimately compelling gospel.